India is highly vulnerable to the effects of the global climate crisis and is simultaneously now the third largest contributor of greenhouse gases in the world. Addressing a crisis as complex and long-standing as climate change requires effective institutions. I'm your host Abhishek and this week on Research Radio we'll speak to Shibani Ghosh and Navroz Dubash about the effectiveness of Indian institutions and policies to address the global environmental crisis. Shibani Ghosh is a fellow at the Center for Policy Research and an advocate on record at the Supreme Court of India. Her work focuses on environmental law and governance. Navroz K. Dubash is also with the Center for Policy Research where he is a professor. His work focuses on climate change, air quality, energy and water. He's played the role of researcher, policy advisor and activist for over 25 years. We'll be focusing on an EPW article written by Navroz and Neha Joseph. Neha could not join us for this interview, but Shibani and Navroz have co-written an expanded version of the EPW article on climate policy in India, and I've shared links to both articles in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Shibani and Navroz. Thank you, Abhishek. Absolutely, we're very happy to be with you. Could you start by maybe telling us about what got you both interested in researching about institutions and policies designed to tackle the environmental crisis? my interest in environmental issues actually goes back uh, as it was for many people in my generation to Narmada Bachao Andolan uh, and the fight against large dams back in the late 80s and through the 1990s. Uh, I had the opportunity to hike through the Narmada Valley with some activists and it made me realize that a lot of environmental damage was happening in the name of development. So while we all historically thought of development as a good thing, a lot of times there were environmental costs to it. And we didn't have the structures in place, the institutions in place, the rules and laws in place to really balance the trade-off between those uh, two things. So that's really what got me interested uh, in this in this area at quite a quite a young age, really. So I'm I'm trained as a lawyer, and uh, through my training, I was able to see the black letter of law. But clearly, as we all know, the problem often lies in the implementation of the law. And very soon, I realized it was apart from the courts, it was the you know the government institutions that were involved, which were often playing the more uh, significant role and the, the the significant actors in the whole scheme of things. And therefore, the implementation and the problems of the implementation of the law often lay with those institutions. And so, when it came in the context of environmental crisis and environmental issues, an area that I was always interested in through through school and through law school. It was all, all, almost a natural area that I'd be interested in in researching. And it just so happened one of my first assignments at the Center for Policy Research when I joined, that was around the time the government of India, the Ministry of Environment Forest, was thinking of a new environmental protection authority and was kind of, in fact, a big institutional rethink that the government had proposed and many organizations, including CPR, was thinking about it. So that really gave me a place and a, uh, an area that I could really start my research from. And that's how it got me started. Right, right. I think that gives us a good understanding of what led you to uh, our topic of conversation today. And just to get right to it, uh, why is it important to understand the role of institutions? So in common language, you think of institutions as organizations, you know, brick and mortar buildings. Whereas in academic language, institutions are defined as the rules of the game that shape interaction between people, communities, and all sorts of actors, right? So, but that's a little abstract. But what do I mean by that? So the constitution, for example, 
in a sense, provides the rules for our political system. So the constitution is, is in a sense, an institution. Closer to home, things that we work on as uh, environmentalists and environmental researchers, things like markets for carbon that people talk about a lot, carbon markets. Well, a carbon market is also an institution because you can actually structure it in different ways. And depending on how you structure it, you shape the incentives for people. So how people win and lose, it even shapes how you think about things. Uh, so it shapes how you, whether certain things are considered to be areas of exploration or areas that are prohibited. It shapes how you know about things. So, I mean, before I go into the larger kind of the law as an institution itself and also institutions, how they're framed by law, I just thought I'd give you examples of how, you know, the nuts and bolts of institutions really make a difference. But just two examples that come to my mind. I used to work in an institution called the Central Information Commission, which is under the Right to Information Act. And I used to work with a commissioner. And when you think of how institutions function, I remember one day the orders of the commissioner were all ready to be issued. And we couldn't issue them, even though the petitioners and the parties were all ready and waiting for the orders, because the office had run out of A4 size paper and we couldn't print them out. So a whole kind of a statutory quasi-judicial body had come to a grinding halt because there was no paper in the office. And basically, the way the office was run right now was so ad hoc that this big statutory institution just didn't function for this small thing. The second example that comes to my mind is the National Green Tribunal, which is more, of course, in the environmental of things, that when it was set up amongst other kind of teething trouble that it had, at least two of the original members of the Green Tribunal actually resigned because after one year of being appointed, the government did not give them place to reside in Delhi. And they were actually living out of guest houses without their families for more than a year and they resigned. And that, again, is another aspect of how institutions are supported by the government. And kind of these kind of nuts and bolts of the working of institutions which actually impact their functioning and therefore impact the functioning of law going forward, which I think these are the kind of aspects of institutions that also need to be understood, I think, and written more about and uh, given due importance in academic writing. In terms of the law, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, we all think the courts play such an important role in India in, in environmental issues, right? But then we look at how the courts are actually trying to implement their own orders. They actually rely on existing institutions like the Pollution Control Boards or the Ministry of Environment and Forest, right? And do these institutions have the capacity to implement what the courts are asking them to do is a big question. And the answer is, is a definite no in most cases. I'll wrap up with just a couple of figures that I came across in a recent order of the National Green Tribunal. And this, the MOEF, uh, the Ministry of Environment, Forest and Climate Change, said it on affidavit. It's basically said that given its current monitoring capacity, all the projects it's given clearance in the last six years, it can visit it once in four and a half years. So given the capacity of the ministry, the number of projects it's giving clearance will only be monitored once in four and a half years. I mean, that's the institutional capacity we have. And that's what the courts are actually trying to rely on to implement any form of law and order. That's quite frightening. And circling back to your research in particular, I noticed that you use several different methods. Could you unpack maybe one or two other experiences from your fieldwork that were particularly insightful? I mean, you know, for example, some of the some of the sorts of things that we that we are able to get at is the extent to which some of the uh, um, bodies that are aimed at climate institutions are really focused on less on internal decision making 
and more on trying to make sure that India's international position is consistent with a certain sort of uh, understanding. And even bodies like the uh, in the Ministry of Finance, one of the interesting things we found over the course of this work is that more and more government bodies, so not just Ministry of Environment, but also bodies like Ministry of Finance, Urban Development, Power, and so on, have now uh, cells in them that focus on climate change. So what's interesting is that the Climate Change Finance Unit in the Ministry of Finance is less focused on how do you raise and allocate money for domestic carbon uh, mitigation or adaptation to carbon risk, and more focused on how do you access money from overseas uh, bodies such as the Green Climate Fund. So not enough attention really to what is going on within the country, still very much kind of an outward-focused diplomatic view of climate change rather than an inward-focused development view of climate change. So as you can see, so our work was basically trying to understand what is the capacity of the ministries and departments, Ministry of Environment included, of course, but other departments as well, to address or to engage with climate change-related issues. And one of the research methodologies we employed was to file right-to-information applications and try and get data out of various ministries and the PMO and to understand, you know, what were the minutes of the meetings, how many meetings were held between different committees that had been set up specifically for the purpose of, you know, climate change related issues. And some of the responses we got were hilarious. I mean, hilarious if they weren't so sad, because, you know, for instance, we asked the prime minister's office, and, and this is a very important government organization and certainly knows the RTI Act well. One of the questions is very straightforward, which is that dates on which the Prime Minister's Council on Climate Change had met since constitution to 2017. So this is meetings that have already been held. Just give us the dates on which the meeting was held. And the reply we got from the Prime Minister's office was this the information sought is very vague and open-ended and would require disproportionate diversion of our resources to respond to. So another question we asked was, could you give us copies of minutes of meetings uh, held previously, and they just refuse, saying that these are cabinet papers which are exempt from exempt from disclosure, which was a completely equal application of the exemption available under, under RTI. And, and interestingly, one that our colleague Neha Joseph had asked the same question a few years ago, and a different official had given her all the information, uh, and and, and the ministry subsequently denied us that information. But a lot of the information that we did get in terms of understanding the uh, human resource availability and all, actually, we got it more from uh, personal interviews, which some of the officials in the ministries were agreeable to and uh, giving us numbers of people who are working in specific ministries. But apart from that kind of, we were, you know, websites of ministries in 2019-20 are still way outdated than, you know, you would. Right, right. I was quite curious about this uh, part of your article where you write, quote, climate policy making in India is a complex business because India carries multiple climate identities. It is simultaneously a highly vulnerable country, a, quote, major emitter, end quote, when measured by annual emissions, and a very low contributor to the problem when measured by per capita or historical emissions, end quote. What are some ways in which these identities have affected India's climate policy? You know, uh, Ambassador Shamsaran, who used to be our, uh, our lead climate negotiator, has a wonderful phrase. He calls India a premature power. Uh, and, and that captures really the kind of uh, uh, almost two-sided kind of view uh, of India. On the one hand, because we are a very poor country and because we haven't contributed very much to emissions, 
we uh, most of our diplomatic effort historically has been focused on asking other countries to do more and saying there's really very little we can do we have to develop first what has also happened is that because that, that that is absolutely true but because india is also a large country we are the third largest emitter in the world now uh, uh, in terms of individual countries not counting the european union uh, which is a block of countries and so if you're going to solve the climate change issue then the third largest emitter has to also be part of doing something i should say that we are third to the us and china which is which is which are who are much larger than than india is but nonetheless if the third largest emitter says look you know uh, we need more time then what happens to the fourth fifth sixth and so on uh, down the line so over time uh, i think that's part of the argument but the other part of the argument is that because india is so vulnerable it's in our own interest to try and have the world collectively do something about this problem so we need to be on the side of a virtuous circle now i have to say that this trade off between development and climate mitigation has become less of a challenge in recent years because of one significant development which is the rise of renewable energy so the lower cost of renewable energy means that we may be able to have a uh, a reasonably low cost energy and for it to be clean whereas in the past this has been seen as a real uh, a real trade off right uh, that that helps us to understand how these identities have shifted over time you've also noted that india's policy of uh, telling other countries to do more more or less didn't change up until 2007 could you expand on the importance of the year 2007 so 2007 was an important year i think it was 2007 because it was the year of the bali climate conference and that was an important moment because it was a moment when the global negotiations uh, became about what role can developing countries play understanding that they need not be in the front lines but that they should play a bit more of a role so just to give a little context to this until that time the kyoto protocol had basically said that richer countries or so called annex 1 countries should lead and non annex 1 countries of which india is one would pick up some more effort in the second commitment period until that point the india argued successfully that the main legal principle that should come into play was the principle of common but differentiated responsibility and respective capabilities now this is a mouthful but what it really means is yes we're all in this together but some countries have more of a responsibility differentiated responsibility the core of india's negotiating approach was to defend the principle in in international law and in practice so post bali the conversation became all right can we maintain some elements of differentiation but is there something that developing countries can do nonetheless and this became a very heated battle where indian negotiators said no we have to maintain a very hard fealty to that principle in the 10 years that followed of negotiations have really been about a process where that principle has slowly been interpreted interpreted in ever more flexible ways but until that point it was all about defending this principle of common but differentiated responsibility and so in that sense uh, as long as you had that diplomatic position you were able to insulate your domestic decisions so that's what i mean by saying it was primarily a foreign policy issue because you had in a sense a bulwark against global pressure right right i i think that segues nicely to you know unpacking what happened uh, the following year Uh, which we already know in retrospect was when the government released the national action plan on climate change 
So this was a moment, as I said, with the Bali action plan where pressure was ramping up on India. Not so much directly on India, but somewhat incidentally as part of pressure on large uh, developing countries uh, in general and in particular on China. So uh, now remember at this point, China's emissions were increasing rapidly. They were still less than the US, but they were growing extremely fast. This was that period when China was notoriously adding a coal-fired power plant practically every week. And China's per capita emissions were also growing to the point where they were almost as much as Europe. In fact, now they are as much as, as Europe. So the per capita argument didn't hold so well for China either. So China released a national action plan. Uh, it was released at the G20 meeting. And India felt a lot of heat to follow suit. And so we did, in fact, release this, uh, this action plan. Um, and the way it was written was actually, in a way, trying to deflect Again, and this is, you asked about points we got from interviews. This came out from a former official who was very candid. He said, look, this was really just about deflecting international attention. The idea was not to really do very much uh, uh, at home. Uh, and so uh, this is, this is uh, and so the, the, the construct they came up with was this idea of co-benefits that said, we will do things that are in our development interest, but some of those things will also bring about climate gains. But we will be primary driver will be our development gains. So the idea was to sort of provide a framework that didn't require us to change things very much. But what was interesting about the National Action Plan, even though it didn't look like it was particularly path-breaking, it did create all these various missions. So I think seven missions at the time on things like Himalayan ecosystems, on solar, on energy efficiency, and so on. What was interesting is some of those missions created and this is where the discussion of institutions come in, they created new institutional spaces, right? So if you were interested in solar power, suddenly you had a set of bureaucrats whose job it was to listen to you, whose job it was to try and uh, uh, open up linkages to other ministries and departments. And so uh, activists, industry, solar industry people and so on, in a sense, had a home base. Uh, and those bureaucrats, it became in their interest to promote this agenda. So institutions often work in unpredictable ways, right? So even though they didn't, these missions didn't have an independent budget, they didn't necessarily have an independent office, they created bureaucratic spaces and bureaucratic incentives. So for example, the mission on energy efficiency, there was an enterprising person there who managed to get external funding um, and made a case uh, to the prime minister's office that said, look, you guys are going to be asked about your results. I think I can deliver some results for energy efficiency. So the next time you get asked what you're doing at the G20, I can give you a set of positive outcomes. And so it became in the interest of the PMO also to support these kinds of initiatives. Right? So these institutional spaces take a life of their own. National Action Plan, I think it's fair to say, had a few surprising such outcomes. And a few of the outcomes ended up being uh, somewhat un fairly unsurprisingly uh, quite flat. But it would not be fair to say that nothing positive happened. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And uh, before we go ahead, you already started talking about the co-benefits model, but I was quite curious about it and was wondering if you could expand on it. Uh, historically, the word co-benefits has been used in the richer countries uh, to basically say, look, please, let's do some carbon mitigation because it brings other gains also. So it's a way of broadening the political tent. India was the first to actually flip it around and say, no, no. We are going to be looking at development first, but if there are some mitigation co-benefits that come along, well and good. And over the years, 
the term co-benefits is now being used interchangeably. And that's how, for example, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uses it. But more than a technical idea, it's a political idea, right? Because it basically, if you remember, we said that India's approach was diplomatically to hold fast to common but differentiated responsibility. Now, that's a very useful defensive principle. But what it also does is, if you find that there's something that you want to do at home that is good for development, but it also brings mitigation, you might think twice about doing it if your first objective is to defend CBDR. Because you don't, in fact, want to show that it is feasible for you to do any mitigation. You want to always show that there is a trade-off, that anything you do on mitigation will hurt you developmentally. Because that's the, that's the underlying assumption of differentiated responsibility, right? It's differentiated because you're poorer, therefore you shouldn't have to bear responsibility. But what if there are things that bring both carbon gains and development gains? Let me give another example. What about public transport in cities, right? Now, arguably, India should be investing very heavily in public transport for reasons that have nothing to do with climate change. Our cities are congested. It's fairer because it gives the broader mass of population uh, more access to uh, better quality transport rather than relying on private transportation. It helps with air pollution. And incidentally, it brings some mitigation, right? So the co-benefits logic allows you to pursue those things without losing face in a sense. And there was literally even a famous case uh, back before LED lighting when compact fluorescent light bulbs, if you remember them, those little twirly light bulbs, right? Um, there was actually an effort in India uh, 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 helped with some US, uh, uh, USAID foreign donor money to put together a big project to push forward adoption of compact fluorescent light bulbs, right? Which bring about energy efficiency and because they give you the same amount of light with less power, you have to build fewer power plants, which saves you capital costs, it saves you pollution, etc. Good idea all around. That project got blocked because we said we should wait for international climate financing before we do that, even though it would have been good for India from a developmental point of view. Under a co-benefits logic, you don't have to play that game so much. Right? And actually, interestingly, India has since put together a massive and very successful LED adoption project under our own money without actually waiting for international finance to come in. So there was a period where we were almost cutting off our nose to spite our face, not doing things because we were worried it would be held against us and would undermine the principle of differentiated responsibility. And Shibani, how might we apply a legal lens to the co-benefits model? Um, from the... Hmm, that's interesting. Interesting question. Uh, It doesn't come uh, to mind immediately as to how laws would kind of support that. But I'm I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, fundamental right to life and clean air and, uh, you know, healthy environment and all the, uh, you know, the the rights that have been read into our uh, right to life by the Indian judiciary. All of that kind of would point towards the fact that, you know, we, we should have clean air. We should not, we should take as many mitigation attempts as possible, uh, efforts towards mitigation as possible. And therefore, they, it could possi- it can potentially buttress a very strong uh, argument towards co-benefits. Because, I mean, I, I've written about this elsewhere in terms of potential of litigation on climate change-related issues uh, in India. And I think there is kind of uh, the, the use of the climate change language in Indian courts is certainly increasing, but it's very much at the peripheral, uh, uh, it's certainly a peripheral issue even now. 
but even when we look at the places where the courts uh, have used the climate change language, it's been very much the, about supporting the mainstream issue. So in that sense, uh, you know, there will be a mainstream environmental problem like air pollution. Uh, for instance, when, when the, uh, the, there's a case relating to pollution in the Rohtang Pass, which is very much, uh, 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 you know, the impact of uh, increased tourism and transport and all in Rohtang Pass and how it impacts the, the uh, impacts that area and the ecology there. And there the court uses that, you know, the in, it goes into this whole climate change related uh, discussion and how the impact on glaciers and uh, of black carbon and all that. Uh, the final decision of the courts don't necessarily, you know, involve around climate change, but certainly it uses that as a as a persuasive uh, argument to support what it finally comes to in the end. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, since this article was published in 2016, about five years ago, how has this landscape shifted since then? You know, I think what's most noteworthy is how little has changed in some ways. Um, and, and, and the fact is, you know, we had a massive moment in climate politics with the Paris Agreement, right? So the Paris Agreement changed the nature of climate politics. This is something that we discussed. So, so, so Shabani and I have written together in this Oxford book called India in a Warming World, which is, which is freely downloadable. And there's an article there that talks about the Paris Agreement by one of our uh, former colleagues, Lavanya Rajamani. And she explains how this is just a watershed in climate law, global climate law. Because instead of countries coming up with top-down targets and then going away and figuring out how to achieve it, they have to come up with their own individual bottom-up targets. Now, that puts a lot of pressure on domestic systems, right? You have to figure out what works for you in your country. And the phrase that is used is nationally determined contributions to climate mitigation and adaptation. So you have to have a way of determining that. So that almost cries out for you building an institutional structure at home. Now, that happened in 2015. But we basically have the same structure we had back in 2008. We have these missions, we have a few informal conversations, and we are currently doing an update to this paper where we explore what has changed. And ironically, very little has changed. So although India has actually pledged to come up with these contributions every five years, we haven't really built an institutional machinery to do that. And I think the time really is right uh, uh, for us to do so. No, I just it just occurred to me that I mean in 2014-15 when the ministry was renamed uh, with Ministry of Environment, Forest Change, Environment, Forest and Climate Change, one would have thought that that would have kind of you know moved the agenda forward with more vigor. But as Navroz mentioned, that's not, you know that it, it's how little has changed since. Um, so just the, the fact that the name of the ministry changed didn't unfortunately reflect much uh, in the actual, you know, institutionalization of climate change related thinking or processes or uh, India's kind of response to it in, the, in, in any way as one would have hoped that it would. Right, right, right. And I, I really wanted to ask you about the the six limitations that you identify in the article that kind of prevent India from successfully addressing the climate crisis. Could we expand on, on on maybe one or two that we've not covered as much? I'll list them really quickly. So ad hoc decision-making, short-lived institutions, coordination issues, a limitation of knowledge production, limitation of capacity within individual governmental organizations, and lack of public consultation. 
the lack of public consultation, not only in terms, I mean, of course, this the, the, the article and then the chapter, we're talking about climate uh, change-related policies and institutions. Um, I mean, just in terms of how the NAPCC was dis- formulated and, uh, you know, uh, uh, for design formulated and then issued and then subsequently the NDC. I mean, what was the process of consultation? I think it's very important to understand who were the institutions involved, who were the stakeholders who were consulted. I think those kind of uh, uh, kind of un- understanding what is the level of openness in the government to uh, to research and thinking outside the government and how they're able to uh, 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 adapt to it or kind of uh, take to it or take to criticism in that sense. I think those are th- that that's a very important issue and and the level of public consultation, not just in climate change related issues, but more broadly in environmental. Uh, uh, governance in India and and environmental regulation. I mean, most recently we've all seen how the draft EI uh, notification 2020 and uh, what kind of consultation the government is allowing for that during during lockdown. Uh, so I I think uh, transparency, openness in institution buildings and how institutions function um, is 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 an extremely critical uh, critical part. Uh, uh, the uh, part of understanding how a country responds to uh, issues like climate change. Uh, and I think there, there is, I mean, there's a lot to be said. I mean, as I started in the, you know, when, when we started, I told you about how the PMO responded to a simple right to information application about meetings that it had already conducted. Uh, I mean, that's a very small example to how transparent a government organization should be. Two, how does it come up with a... Uh, NDC or how does it come up with the NAPCC or how does it set targets for itself? Uh, I think those are important questions to be uh, to be thought about, written about. Uh, yeah, I just just want to complement that in a couple of couple of ways. So, I mean, first on uh, the consultation process, you know, Shibani sort of talked about it in the context of, for example, the the environmental impact assessment um, and the notification. Uh, I think there's another sort of dimension to that as well, right? So trans- you want transparency uh, so that you can it can foster accountability, but you also want porous and open processes because it makes it more it makes those processes richer and more likely to succeed. So in the climate arena, for example, in the climate arena, uh, one of the things that uh, a country like India has to think very hard about is whether we can tunnel through a high-carbon development model to a low-carbon model, right? So why should we build our cities around uh, the internal combustion engine, around private transport, and then later on shift to electric vehicles, electric buses, cycles, and so on and so forth? We haven't built many of our cities. We haven't built our transport networks fully. Why can't we go straight to, say, an electric vehicle future focused on public transport? Now, if you're going to do that, that's a very big transition, right? You have to have a lot of players who can shape the nature of that transition. Uh, you need the vehicle industry. You need to have the f- uh, uh, understand the impact on the fuel industry. You need to understand the impact on the electricity industry. You need to understand what it means for taxi drivers, auto rickshaw drivers, bus drivers and their unions. You need to understand what it means for consumers. So if you're going to bring about this transition in ways that take account of all the information and knowledge as well as all the interests. You need to have processes that are deliberative and open, right? So, so for example, many countries do things like 
put out white papers to speculate on a big transition, invite comments, and only then design a policy. We don't have that kind of tradition, and I think it, it really limits us. Uh, a related point is knowledge production. So as I said, India now has to put out these five yearly pledges, right, as to how much we can do. Those pledges are typically informed by modeling studies. Most governments have in-house modeling capacity or they have technical people they can resort to. The way India does it, which is not necessarily a bad way, is we rely on outside research institutes, think tanks who are contracted to do these studies. Uh, in the early years, those were kept completely secret. As time has gone on, the government has, in fact, opened up a bit more. They have brought in outside experts. I sit on a couple of these committees. We give feedback. There's a bit of conversation with the government. It's still not as open and transparent as I would like, but we've moved in the right direction. But we have to build the capacity for this. And within government, we simply don't have the modeling capacity even to interact properly with the modelers, right? You don't have to be a modeler, but you have to be able to ask informed questions of the modelers. We need to have people who over time build that capacity. And frankly, even though we have very, very smart people in government, they're all incredibly overwhelmed. So one individual, which is another theme we talk about in the, in the paper, one individual that might be managing you know, uh, uh, several missions, several state action plans, international negotiations, all sorts of things, all in the, in the body of uh, you know, one joint secretary. So this makes it actually very, very challenging to have thoughtful and well-informed uh, decision-making. And I know that your research doesn't focus on this specifically, but it's something that I thought during our conversation, are there examples where social movements have influenced institutional change? Yeah, so maybe I'll just add one quick thing and maybe Shivani can follow up on that. You know, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, we, we have had a few NGOs working on climate change, but we haven't had social movements, mass social movements, pushing for climate change, partly because civil society politics in India has also been very conflicted about this whole differentiated responsibility business. You know, there was a real sense in which we were felt that the, the industrialized countries were get, taking a free ride. And many of our uh, uh, more progressive uh, activists felt like we didn't want to, in a sense, give the North an excuse to get away scot-free. Again, with the co-benefits argument, it has, it has led to more civil society organizations being willing to engage on climate change because it doesn't necessarily imply a trade-off uh, with development. But it's only now that we're starting to see youth movements uh, and so on and so forth uh, um, engaging uh, with, uh, with climate change. And I said, my roots are in the Namada uh, Bachao Andolan, but we haven't had that kind of mobilization. But in general, as the Andolan shows, uh, uh, so the Andolan was very much part of a larger push that led to uh, the rethinking about our laws on resettlement, right? So we have definitely experienced where social movements have been extremely powerful. Uh, but for the reasons I explained, we haven't had that kind of focused social movement in climate change uh, just yet. There have been kind of uh, groups getting together on specific laws or issues and pushing back. On, and, uh, you know, and we see more and more of that happening now as the government is trying to dilute many of the environmental laws and regulations that are already in, uh, already in place. And I'm just thinking, I mean, the kind of environmental disasters that we've seen recently and we're kind of getting together around that and pushing for some form of action from the government. Uh, I, I I don't think we've, I mean, it's, 
we wouldn't have seen that perhaps a few decades ago, but we're seeing that now. But unfortunately, I don't see that having a, you know, resulting in a systemic institutional change. It results in ad hoc reactions from the government, where it de- the government or the courts would declare, uh, you know, uh, declare compensation or penalty amounts of uh, uh, penalty amounts are awarded. Uh, but you know, I, I I don't see a kind of a systemic change coming through, which would ensure that future such accidents are are, are prevented or people are deterred from committing the, committing these kind of violations. I think a lot of the groups that are working on forest conservation and for the long term, not just specific for pieces of land, uh, I think they are starting to use the climate language also in their advocacy and their activism and talking about how uh, uh, forests are carbon sinks and how how India should play a more important role in uh, you know increasing its forest cover rather than losing its forest cover. Uh, so I think that language is perhaps now creeping in into these movements, but. I mean, I, as I said, creeping in I, may not be the the, the own the, you know the focus of the language that they are using. And is there a way that environmental policies can take a holistic view of the impact on vulnerable communities? You know, the human impact of the environmental crisis that should be considered. Well, actually, it just occurred to me that you know this distinction between uh, the government's approach to adaptation and mitigation is perhaps. Uh, I mean, we didn't spend much time on that here and we haven't spent much time on that. I mean, it's in terms of institutions, most of the work has been more on the mitigation side of it. But Abish, what you're saying, I mean, in terms of the human impacts, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot, lot needs to be done on the adaptation side, I think, um, which, and, and that also would require a lot of interagency coordination with different, even more ministries involved and not just ministries, local governments, state governments, all of that uh, would have to get involved in that kind of adaptation related uh, measures. And, and and I don't think we are there yet. I mean, I don't think the government is thinking at that level of uh, coordination. I, I, I think the government is aware of what, it, uh, you know, what we're in for, but I, I, I to, to my, my understanding, it's, it's, uh, it's not, Certainly, its response has not been so far in terms of institutionalizing these things uh, proportionate to the kind of uh, crisis that we are already in and are likely to face. Um, uh-huh. And a last question that I have, and it's a little more future looking, and it's about the unanswered questions that you're continuing to investigate in your future work. So that work in EPW has led us to do a much more systematic study across eight countries of how they are institutionalizing climate governance for developed countries, for developing countries. Um, And we're making the argument that these institutions have to be context-specific. So in India, it's focused on co-benefits. In the UK, it's focused on their net zero carbon target. In the US, it's driven by the fact that they keep having administrations that are ultimately in favor of and then against climate policy making. So there's a lot of kind of guerrilla institution building that happens in the U.S. kind of under the radar in a sense. Uh, And we're looking to see how uh, these institutions are shaped by uh, very path-dependent historical processes in these countries and what it means for core governance challenges like coordination, strategic thinking, uh, how you interface with the different interests, uh, whether or not these institutions are robust or whether they are subject to rollback as governments shift. Uh, and and this is a this is a largest project that we're bringing to uh, conclusion this year, so it it really stems directly from the kinds of questions we asked in that in that EPW paper a few years ago. These the, the EPW paper and the 
and the chapter, of course, talk about at the national level, the, 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 the various ministries that are involved, the departments that are involved. But what interests me is also the ex- other existing organizations, which are, you know, which have a slightly different mandate, but certainly interact very closely with and uh, with, with uh, climate impacts. Uh, so, for instance, if you're looking at uh, coastal regulation zone uh, management authorities that are created under the CRZ regulations, which will be, you know, which are dealing with uh, regulatory issues on the coasts, which is you know, and climate change concerns should come up on a daily basis in their decision making or the pollution control boards and how they are issuing approvals and regulate, uh, uh, you know, consents that they give to various industries and uh, power plants and other uh, sources of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's quite interesting to see how uh, these existing regulators uh, whose mandate is not specifically to look at climate change, but certainly their mandate interact, interacts very closely with climate change, how they start uh, engaging with that issue, uh, whether they engage with that issue and ho- how do they do that and how do they build their internal capacity to respond to these issues. Uh, that's an area of uh, much interest in like, to build that in the future. Navroz and Shibani, thank you so much for sharing granular details of how Indian institutions are attempting to deal with the climate crisis. Now, I think we had a very good discussion, very exhaustive list of questions. So thank you very much for paying attention to the paper. Thank you, Abhishek. There were two things that stood out to me from our conversation. I like how Navroz explained the extent to which India's response to climate change has focused on managing their international diplomatic relations. Shibani's observations that India's judiciary relies on institutions in order to implement any orders or policies was also quite revealing of the extent to which institutions on climate policy need to be strengthened. I do recommend reading the full article published in EPW, and I've shared a link to it in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll speak to Renu Adlaka about her work on the women's movement and women with disabilities. We'll focus on how medical and legal systems shape our understanding of disability. I'm eagerly looking forward to that conversation, and if it sounds exciting to you, do subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss out on it. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this is the second episode of our new season and we'd love to get your feedback via any of EPW's social media accounts. Take care and I'll see you next week.